Welcome to the West Wind Unitarian Universalist podcast. Join us in creating compassionate community. That was lovely, Kurt. Okay. So my sermon title today is Take a Knee, Commemorating African-American Voices in History. And I have to start by saying that I do not know a lot of African-American history. I am not an expert in that field. I've read what I've been asked to read in classes and gone through school, and I've studied and researched what I've been told, but does that make sense? I haven't actively spent a lot of time in my personal life going out of my way to look into that specific subject and topic of history in that way. Because of that, I am not an expert in this conversation. I struggled figuring out what to make a title of this because this is the beginning of Black History Month. I would like to learn more about uh, the contribution of blacks in our society over over our history and over our time. Um, But I don't want to pander, and I don't want to look like this is the only time I think about it because it's not. Um, And so it took a minute. I went with take a knee, not because I'm really good at football metaphors, Um, but because of the work that Colin Kaepernick did and his efforts to show his displeasure with the way that African-Americans were being treated in the United States. Um, I kind of agree with him. And I think that the platform that he had as a means to voice his opinion was a good platform. And I think the way that he did it, kneeling, was a good way to do it. I mean, I'm not a prayer guy, but I know a lot of people who kneel in prayer. I'm not much of a meditation guy either, but I know a lot of people who get down close to the ground and meditate. I know a lot of people who have knelt in remembrance and in uh, solidarity. <coughs> but the more I thought about that term, what I really want to talk about is us taking a knee. We need to huddle in. It's time for us to talk. Have a conversation about a little bit about our UU roots and the history of African Americans in our particular organization. The quote, I have two quotes from Uh, Kaepernick, I'm going to start with one and finish with the other. This stand wasn't because I feel like I'm being put down in any kind of way. This is because I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice. People that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. So I'm in the position where I can do that and I'm going to do that for people who can't. I see us in this room in very similar situation as Kaepernick. Many of us are not persecuted in the way that our fellow African Americans are in society. Because of our privilege, we have the ability to make a statement without fear of the same kind of repercussions. Don't get me wrong, there are many people who would say that Kaepernick didn't get recalled to play football because of his stance. But then he got a multi-million dollar contract with Nike to just say exactly what he wanted to say and how he felt about stuff. So I can't say that it didn't work out well for him. Um, what I would say is that his privilege gave him an opportunity to make a statement that started a national conversation. <coughs> Our privilege just gives us the same opportunity to make a statement. When we take a knee in solidarity, when we participate with our black leaders within our community, our solidarity is shown by our willingness to stand up or to take a knee, to march, to not so much put our voice in, but to support the voices of the black leadership within our community. That said, I didn't really know we had specifically a black leadership 
within the Unitarian Universalist Association. And technically, we don't. What we do have is an organiza organization that started in uh, 2015 called BLUU, Black Lives Unitarian Universalist. And their mission is specifically to cater to the spiritual and social needs of black people within the UU community. It is sponsored for and paid for their funding comes through the UUA, but it is not the UUA. It is a separate entity that creates a spiritual space for black Unitarian Universalists to have conversations, to feel safe. And the reason it was necessary, apparently, is if you read the survey, I'll, leave, I'll give you links to a lot of these different articles that I read online. If you read the survey, the survey basically says that there are a lot more African-Americans participating within our community than we recognize. But they are dispersed amongst community members, just like theoretically any individual faith within our community is dispersed, right? Everybody in this room doesn't believe the same thing and doesn't have the same background. But that doesn't mean that there aren't others within the UUA who might have that same background or have that same belief, okay? Unfortunately, people that participated within the UUA that were African-American repeatedly found as if they were isolated within their mostly white communities. And so what the BLUU did was they created a space that they could come together, mostly online, mostly through Facebook, but also through meetings in real time, in real places. And they, have, and they could have conversations about their spiritual needs, their needs to find more music that spoke to them, hear more black words from the pulpit, have more readings within our uh, singing the living tradition that spoke with black voices. Um, prior to singing the living tradition, which came out in the late or in the early 1990s, I think it's 93. Am I wrong? Mary Francis, give me crazy looks. Was it the 80s? Okay, I'm sorry. The dates. There's a lot of dates going on, and I, I'm sorry if I confused it. Look in the book, right? Um, prior to that, there was three. There were two black hymnals and one uh, Latino hymn within our within our lexicon. Now we have a wide variety of voices. In fact. The uh, majority of my sermon is going to be from this article that I'm going to read you. And the author of this article points out that singing the living tradition has done a really good job of integrating black voices into the book. Okay. All that said, um, the Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, BLUU, is, well, it's not for anybody in this room. None of us are African American. Well, not that I know of, anyway. I'm not trying to, to, to label. But because we aren't, that community is not for us. But that community needs our support. They need us to kneel in solidarity. They need us to continue to pay our UUA dues and support them when we send uh, 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 representatives to the, to the General Assembly to vote. And tithe. And tithe, yeah. Part of the way that works, I mean, in the oh, mid to late 60s, early 70s, there was a real uh, schism that was created just after the creation of UUA because... Uh, Black members did not feel as if their needs were being met. And some of that's going to come out in what I'm about to read. So I think I'm just going to get started here, if you don't mind. This is from an article, The Black Hole and White UU Psyche. It was in the, uh, uh, the UU uh, World Magazine in the fall of 2017. It's by Mark Morrison Reed. What is the consequence of not knowing Unitarian Universalism's black history? We have embraced a false narrative about who we are. Now, I've got three excerpts here. They're a little bit lengthy, but I think it'll bring it all around. Here we go. Errol D. Kallemeyer in White Plains, New York. Margaret Mosley at the Community Church of Boston and the Unitarian Church of Barnstable, Massachusetts. Nathan J. Johnson in Seattle. 
Joseph H. Jenkins in Richmond, Virginia, Cornelius W. McDougall and Isaac G. McNatt at the Community Church of New York, James F. Cunningham in Sitka, Alaska, Harold B. Jordan at All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C., Cornelius Van Jordan in Cincinnati, Selena E. Reed and Kenneth L. Gibson at First Unitarian Church in Chicago, Jim Bolden in Philadelphia, Sylvia Lyons Render in Durham, North Carolina. All of these people are African Americans and all served as the head of the governing board of a predominantly white UU congregation during the 1940s, 50s, or early 60s. In 1956, a survey reported that 80 Unitarian congregations had African American members and in 49 of those congregations, African-Americans were active as officers. That means 60 years ago, nearly 10% of Unitarian congregations had African-American members holding positions of leadership. African-Americans, however, were invisible in our scholarship. Their absence reflected the belief and contributed to the belief that there was no story to tell. Yet African-Americans have been founding members of Universalist, Unitarian, and UU congregations as early as 1785 when Gloucester Dalton was a signatory at the founding of John Murray's Universalist Congregation. Other founding members include Amy Scott, one of the incorporators of the First Universalist Society in Philadelphia in 1801, Louis Latimer, a founder in Flushing, New York in 1907, James Cunningham, the first president of a fellowship in Sitka, Alaska in 1955, and Sylvia Lyons Rinder, a founding member of the Eno River Congregation in Durham, North Carolina, and its first board secretary. With one exception, these congregations, all predominantly white, still exist. There are other UU congregations that black folks founded, or at least tried to found. In 1860, William Jackson, a Baptist minister, testified at the autumnal convention of the American Unitarian Association to his conversion to Unitarianism. They took a collection and sent him on his way, historian Douglas Strange writes. No discussion, no welcome, no expression of praise or satisfaction was uttered, and the Unitarian gospel, oh, or, Sorry. No expression of praise or satisfaction was uttered that the Unitarian gospel had reached the colored. In 1887, Jarum Beard Wilkins founded the People's Temple Church Colored Unitarian in Chicago. It lasted about a year. In 1892, Joseph Jordan founded a Universalist congregation in Northfolk, Virginia. Thomas Wise founded others in Suffolk and Ocean View, Virginia in 1894 and 1902. Egbert Ethelder Brown, Ethelred, Egbert Ethelred Brown, started a Unitarian congregation in Jamaica in 1908 before moving to Harlem in 1920, where he founded a Harlem community church. The AUA provided sporadic financial support and then took away his ministerial fellowship in 1929. Can you imagine how we would be enriched today if there was a vibrant UU congregation in Harlem that had been around for almost 100 years? In 1932, William H.G. Carter founded a church in Cincinnati, but the white ministers in the area did not tell the AUA of its existence. In 1947, Louis McGee was among those who found, founded the Free Religious Fellowship in Chicago. Today, it is only a remnant. None of the other congregations survived. Suppose that funds had been forthcoming in 1911 when Joseph Fletcher Jordan asked Universalists to support plans to add a seminary to the African-American school he ran in Suffolk, Virginia. The graduates might have fanned out across the South to preach the gospel of the larger hope, God's all-embracing love. They needed $6,000 to do this endeavor. Jordan traveled around the Northeast in 1911 and 1912 raising money, but in the end raised less than $1,500. 
To put this in context, in April of 1890, the Universalists began a mission in Japan. The Japanese mission was given at least $6,000 a year, often more, eventually totaling more than $275,000. During the same years, the Universalists could not raise $6,000 for their mission for the colored people. What does it suggest? The black lives don't matter. Despite the invisibility of black lives in the curricula, African Americans continued seeking a home in Unitarian Universalism. In 1920, for example, 10-year-old Jeffrey Campbell discovered Universalism and on his way home, uh, and on his own began attending First Universal Society in Nashua, New Hampshire, bringing his little sister along. In 1929, Campbell enrolled in the theological school at St. Lawrence University, a Universalist seminary. 50, 50, Ooh, 50 years later, Campbell told me that when he was admitted to the seminary, the superintendent of the New York State <coughs> Universalist Convention complained to the dean, John Murray Atwood, why are we wasting the denomination's money on an N-word? Campbell graduated in 1935, but the Universalists could not find a gun congregation willing to settle him, nor in 1937 could the Unitarians. The same was true for Louis McGee when he approached the AUA in 1927, Harry V. Richardson in 1930, Eugene Sparrow in 1949, McGee again in 1956, David Eaton in 1959, and Tom Paine in 1970. Imagine, what if a congregation had been eager to settle Campbell? Of mixed race, he was raised in New Hampshire by his white mother. This was not about culture. He would not have offered a radical departure from the New England ethos. This was pure and simple racism. The fact is this, the person who controlled Universalism's journal, the Christian leader, for 22 years was an out-and-out -out racist. John Van Shake was the only Universalist leader to argue against starting a seminary in Suffolk. Earlier, he argued for closing the Suffolk mission altogether. He agreed with the Daughters of the American Revolution that it, when it refused to allow Marian Anderson to sing at Constitution Hall, when he became the editor of the leader, articles about the Universalist mission to the colored people disappeared from the front page. And he said Jeff Campbell was betraying his race and should go elsewhere if he wished to be a minister. Are you confused? <laughs> this faith that you love has said over and over, sometimes in words, but more often indeed, that black lives don't matter. Consider ministry. There were no African-American UU ministers in 1929. Joseph F. Jordan had died and Ethelred Brown's fellowship had been withdrawn. In 1955, there were four. In 1962, eight, including one Hispanic. In 1988, around 20. In 2026, and today, at least 112 people of color. That growth followed upon the Commission on Religion and Races established in 1965 of the committee toward uh, and of the committee toward integrating the UU ministry and the black affairs and the black affairs council which demanded support of black ministers in 1968 around 1981 the committee on urban concerns and ministry pressed the UU ministers association and the ministerial fellowship committee to allow ministers credentialed by other denominations to seek UU settlements and the MFC began granting dual fellowship to African-American ministers joining us from other denominations. In 1987, the Department of Ministry established an Affirmative Action Task Force. In 1989, the African-American UU Ministry was founded, and in 1997, DRUM, 
diversity, and revolutionary UU multicultural ministries evolved from it. Today, religious professionals of color are supported by an annual gathering called Finding Our Way Home. The list it draws from includes 250 names of ministers, religious educators, musicians, administrators, and seminarians. I estimate that the number of ministers of color is now doubling approximately every 12 years. There's a critical mass. The shift to become a more culturally inclusive faith will continue. The time in Unitarian Universalism when black lives didn't matter has passed. Oh, thank goodness, I can't tell you how long I've been waiting to read that. <laughs> Nonetheless, change is generational, incremental, and bruising. It comes, but not necessarily on our time schedule. We have fallen short and will again, and when we do, we need to pause <coughs> and pray and ask, what does love demand of me? And then stand up and try again. And patience is not what sustains us, but rather dreams, hope, work, and companionship. The chance to pour out one's life for the faith, principles, and people whom we value. Now I will say that uh, Mark Morrison Reed's essay is much longer than what I just read. Those are just brief excerpts. And he gets into a lot of details about some of the historical complexity of African Americans within the UUA and the context of how that changed and developed as we grew well, let's be honest, more woke, okay? Um, I read him today, and I want to make this clear, because he is an African-American voice within our community. He's a historian. He has done the work and research to give us names that are viable and of use to us to understanding our complex history. I can spend all day on the internet flipping through stuff and looking through books and reading stuff, but I will tell you right now, maybe some of you have discovered this, it is sometimes difficult to find out the racial identity of an author unless what they're talking about is very specifically about race or accompanied by a photograph. If you do not have the full biography of that individual upon reading their text, it is not always clear who that person is or where they come from. Because of that, again, I find the research daunting. It is good to know that there are black leaders within our community who've done that research for us and can give us information and insight into our own growth and development. So, when they put this podcast on this coming week, I will have links to all the different articles I read for this, as well as links to the children's story so you can learn more about Francis, uh, Ellen, Watkins, Harper. Okay? Um, and I just want us to remember, I'm going to finish with my last Colin Kaepernick. Oh, maybe that was the only Colin Kaepernick statement I have. So I'm going to read it one more time because I really like it. This stand wasn't because I feel like I'm being put down in any kind of way. This is because I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice. People that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. So I'm in the position where I can do that and I'm going to do that for the people that can't. We too are in the position to do that for people who can't. So, in this next month, where we get opportunities to watch all kinds of great documentaries on PBS and read all kinds of stories in magazines and newspapers and watch all kinds of great black history things pop up on Netflix, how are you going to support that growth and development? How are you going to lean in? 
How are you going to kneel in solidarity? Those are the questions I leave with today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Unitarian Universalism and to connect with us, please visit www.westwinduuc.org or find us on Facebook at West Wind Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Mm -hmm.